Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Because you won't find us on Google or Facebook, we respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome, everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined with the previous guest, Dr. Paul Conant, who you may remember as being the founder of the Fluoride Action Network, which has been really instrumental in helping reduce the exposure to fluoride in North America and many countries throughout the world. So uh, he's going to give us the latest update uh, in our Fluoride Action Week. And uh, we really look forward to this every year to, to see the progress that's being made. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you, Joe. And it's great actually to talk to you now because I think our position, which goes back 20 years now, when I got involved in 96, one of my big concerns was the possibility that fluoride would be lowering children's, children's IQ. Mm -hmm. The first two Chinese studies have been published in 1995 and 96 in English. There have been previous studies published in Chinese, but we, these were the first to hit the English market, as it were. And I was very concerned then and felt strongly that if there was any evidence that fluoride lowered the intelligence of children, then there's no way that you would put the teeth above that and, and continue this practice of water fluoridation, especially... Uh, unless you were a dentist. Unless you were well, unless you were trapped. I mean, <laughs> I think they're trapped. It's, it's a paradigm. It's... A, it's something that they celebrated for 75 years, and it's very difficult to get rid of a belief system. It's very difficult to admit. Yeah, you know, you know there's this pervasive psychological principle called, called confirmation bias, which I think is another variable that enters into the equation. And they, 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 look, they look at everything through that filter, and they discount everything that doesn't line up with it. Yeah. Well, the bombshell came in uh, 2017. Up to that point, we had about 60 studies that had, sh had shown a lowering of IQ, 60. Mm -hmm. Most of them from China, but some from India, some from Iran, some from Mexico. But the bombshell came in 2017 when a, when a US-funded study, a 12-year-old study, 12-year-in-the-making study, looked at pregnant women in Mexico City measured the fluoride in their urine, which is a measure of total exposure, not related to where the fluoride comes from, a total measure, whether the fluoride came from salt or water or food or toothpaste, doesn't matter. The total dose of fluoride as measured in their urine, and they found a strong relationship between that level of fluoride and the lowered IQ in their offspring measured at four and it's six to 12 years of age. Now this was funded by the NIH, National Institute of Health, and also the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, one of my favorite agencies. And finally the EPA, not my favorite agency. But two of them were promoters of fluoridation. As you know, the National Institute of Health is the parent of the public health service. And so they've been promoting it for years and years and years. So I believe they put a lot of money into this study 
thinking that it would prove once and for all that crazy people like me and others were absolutely wrong with the notion that fluoride is lowering IQ in children. Um, but lo and behold, they gave us very, very strong evidence uh, that it is, and, and that the, the most susceptible age as far as fluoride's impact on the brain is during fetal development. It turns out the placenta does not protect the fetus from fluoride. And as you know, up to about six months of age, the blood-brain barrier is not fully formed in the baby. So the baby, the fetus, is very susceptible to um, this impact of, of, of fluoride. And within a couple of years, that study was essentially replicated in Canada Here's the first response of the ADA. Oh, no, this doesn't apply to the United States. This was a study done in Mexico City, ignoring the fact that human beings are human beings, and we had a measure of the exposure to a pregnant woman. It hardly mattered that the pregnant woman was in Mexico City. She could have been anywhere, as far as that measurement was concerned. But anyway, the study was essentially replicated in Canada and they found essentially the same thing, a lowered IQ associated with the mother's exposure via the urine measurement, with one major difference. It was the boys had lowered IQ, not the girls in this study. However, this research group also looked at exposure to the mother in another way, calculating how much she ingested. And there was a relationship between that and the, uh, the baby's IQ, the offspring's IQ. Now this study, unlike the first one, the Bashash study got a certain amount of coverage, particularly in Canada, because the head researcher was from the University of Toronto. So they got some coverage there, but not much. Certainly not in the New York Times. But the second study was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, Pediatrics. Now that's the, one of the major pediatrics journal, as you know, in the world. And the, the editors of this journal went to extreme lengths. They knew this was controversial. Hats off for them to take it on. They knew it was going to be controversial. They doubled up on the peer review process. They double checked on the statistics. And so they were confident when they launched it. They ran an editorial saying the steps they'd taken. They had two of the editors, the editor of JAMA in total, and the editor of JAMA Pediatrics did a podcast, a 20-minute podcast, explaining how astounding the results were. They had said, oh, we had no idea that fluoride caused any problems to health. I don't know what they've been reading. But anyway, they didn't find it up, up to that point. So it was a bombshell for them to suddenly find that fluoride could be damaging the brain of the fetus. And they also ran an editorial from David Bellinger, as you probably know, is one of the world's experts on lead's neurotoxicity. And, and he said, you know, the measurements here are akin to what's happening with lead. So very, very serious. And that got a lot of coverage around the world, a lot of coverage. The other side was organized and they quickly got some experts, none of them actually experts on fluoride or toxicology, or neurotoxicity, who, you know, said all the right things to dampen people's concern about this study. Now, there have been two more studies, and I'll leave it at that. There are four studies that people need to know about, and we've got them explained, little video expert, uh, excerpts from me explaining them, 
on our webpage, fluoridealert.org, so you can, people can check this out in, in some detail. But two more studies. There was a study from Riddell in 2019, and she found a 300% almost increase in the prevalence of ADHD in Floridated communities compared to non-Floridated communities in Canada. Um, this is an extraordinary result. And just taking that one fact, you would have thought that would have given even the New York Times, which is a longtime supporter of fluoridation and a longtime supporter of the notion that all the science was uh, resolved in the 1950s. This is Donald McNeil, the senior science editor of the New York Times. His father was a promoter of fluoridation, wrote a book on it, and it stuck with his son that all the science stopped in the 1950s. I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? Science editor for the New York Times believes that science actually stops at a certain point. Science never stops. Always, you have to entertain the notion that an ugly fact can destroy a beautiful theory. And in this particular case, we got a lot of ugly facts, but the big one is the fact that fluoride can damage children's brains. And the last study was done by Till and co-workers, and she was involved with several of the other studies. She was involved with the Riddell study. But under her name, they compared the IQ of children who had been bottle-fed as babies in Floridated communities versus non-Floridated communities. So what we're looking at here is two sets of babies. One set of babies growing up in a Floridated community and bottle-fed, so they would have used Floridated tap water to make up the formula. Another group of babies who grew up in non-Floridated areas where the mothers used non-Floridated tap water to feed them. Now, you would think with this controversy, this would have been the study that should have been done years ago, years ago. And lo and behold, they found a difference in IQ of nine IQ points, a lowering of IQ with that one simple difference. Do you bottle feed your baby fluoridated tap water or do you bottle feed your baby non-fluoridated tap water? The ones who did it with fluoridated tap water according to the study, was associated with the lowering of IQ of nine IQ points. Incredible. So those four studies are on the table. Now, this interview, as you, you know, is on June the 2nd. In six days' time, we have our first our lawsuit, our chance to put our concerns to the test in a federal court with a judge listening to both sides, listening to ourselves, explaining the neuro, this, these studies, the neurotoxicity of fluoride. And then we're going to hear from the EPA's experts, who are industry experts. Uh, you believe they, have to, they don't have experts of their own. They have to go to industry consultants that have defended glyphosate and all those other dreadful things. They are there. You know, they, everything's safe, according to these experts, including now... Of fluoride. But we have, Joe, for our lawsuit, which will be over by the time this is broadcast, but nevertheless, uh, we will hear from some of the leading experts on neurotoxicity in the world, including a couple that were involved in the studies I've been talking about. Um, 
Bruce Lamphere, who's the go-to person for lead neurotoxicity in the United States. This is the guy the EPA goes to for information on lead neurotoxicity. And he is, he's one of the people in that last study, the, the bottle feeding study. He worked with Christine Till on that study. And we also have Howard Hugh, who was the lead author of the Bashash study, that first one from 2017. And, and then in addition to that, we have um, Philippe Rangine, who, and you, I'm sure you world's expert on neurotoxicity, written a book, literally, only, what, what's it called? Only One Chance, or, yes, I think it's called Only One Chance. He, I mean, he stresses that if you damage the developing brain, it's irreversible. So, so what is your uh, best case anticipation for the outcome of this uh, uh, litigation? I, I am very optimistic. As I say, they don't have the science, we do. And not only do we have the science, but we have some of the world's best experts testifying for us. So unless these crafty lawyers for the EPA are able to muddy the waters, I think we'll have no, no trouble in demonstrating three things. One, that the preponderance of evidence that fluoride is neurotoxic, neurotoxic is overwhelming. That's the first thing. The second thing is that it is a risk at the levels at which we add fluoride to the water. And thirdly, it's an unnecessary risk because even if your number one focus was reducing tooth decay, there are other ways of delivering fluoride instead of this ridiculous notion of putting it in the drinking water and forcing it on your whole population. Um, so I think we can demonstrate those three things. And I'm happy to tell you that my son, who started our webpage in 2020 and developed the largest health database in the world, bigger than any of the fluoridating governments, by the way, is going to be the, the lawyer fighting this case. So not only is he a lawyer who knows more about this issue than anybody else, but he's also a pretty good lawyer. What, what happens if you're victorious and you prove those points? I mean, what, what, is the, uh, what are the implications uh, of the victims? Good question, Joe. Good question. Um, I fear that the EPA will appeal and do what the EPA is best at, which is dragging its feet. That there's no agency in the United States that is better than dragging its feet on controversial issues. They dragged their feet for over 18 years on the reassessment of dioxin, an issue I was very close to. Uh, I was involved at the beginning. Um, it, 18 years, and they still didn't resolve the issue. So they're very subject to industry pressure, and, and their way of resolving issues is just delay, delay, and delay. But I do believe that if a federal court, having heard both sides, declares that fluoride poses an unnecessary uh, risk, unreasonable risk to the developing brain of our children, that that news will ricochet around the fluoridating world uh, in Australia, in New Zealand, in Ireland, in Canada, in Israel, Malaysia, and a few other countries where they still fluoridate. It's going to have a huge 
impact. And I think, well, the citizens will be able to use this as ammunition to say to their health departments, come on, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? When you've got this scientific information, these are US government funded studies, they're done by top-notch scientists. Why on earth would you continue this practice when you know that if you want fluoride, you can simply brush it on your teeth and spit it out? What is your rationale for continuing this? And by the same token, to the professional bodies, to the AMA, the ADA, the APHA, and all those other organizations that have endorsed fluoridation for years and years and years, why would you continue to support this? Why would you tell the public that you have no scientific credibility, that you don't read the science, that you don't keep up with the science on an issue like this, when you're going to the public and saying again and again and again that fluoridation is safe and effective, when you've got this evidence right there in front of you and it's been examined actually Joe, one more thing, not just by a court of law, if we're lucky, you know, come June the 19th, or it may take a few weeks for the court to rule. So this result may not be out by the time this is broadcast. The court case will be over, but we'll still be waiting for the judge possibly in, in July. But one other court, possibly the most important agency for reviewing the toxicology of toxic substances, is the National Toxicology Program, the NTP. And back in 2016, the Florida Action Network, as you know, I'm part of, asked the NTP to review, to do a systematic review of the neurotoxicity of fluoride. This is before the court case and before the, we went to court. And after three and a half years, they came back having reviewed all the animal data and the human data. And in their draft, they said, based upon the literature, the presumption is that fluoride is a neurotoxic substance. Based upon studies done on children in several different countries, the presumption is that it is neurotoxic. Not that it's definite, but you would have to presume based upon all the literature, that this is a neurotoxic substance. So a huge vindication for our case, but because it's a draft and not a final version, we can't actually rule it, use it in the court case. So, uh, but in the back of our minds, this is very useful, useful for us going forward in addition to whatever the court rules. Well, thank you for giving us that update. I'm wondering if you have any other insights with respect to what's happened in the last year and the progress of uh, removing fluoride from the water supplies in, in the United States or any other countries. Have you, what type of progress has been made there? It's, it's still very, very difficult because the people that want this to continue always point to government agencies like in Australia, they point to the National Health and Medical Research Council for their reviews, which as bogus as they are and as unscientific as they are, carry a lot of weight. The same in Ireland, they refer to the expert committee. In, in New Zealand, they refer to the Ministry of Health. 
in England, in the United States are referred to the Center of Disease Control. And so all these agencies that have been promoting fluoridation are the ones that have been the judges of whether there's a problem or not. And it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. But the one judge it's going to count right now is a federal law judge who will listen to both sides. And Joe, the important thing, again, going back to this lawsuit, the important thing to note is that he does not have to give any credence to the EPA as an agency. Normally when the EPA gets involved with a, a lawsuit, the EPA says, oh, well, we are the agency which looks after these things. We are the agency that rules on the toxicity, on the safety of X, Y, and Z. And the judge will defer to their authority. Not in this case, because we are suing the EPA. The EPA has the burden of showing that their science is better than our science. And quite frankly, it's an impossible job. They can't do it. They can't do it. That's why they had to go to these consultants for industry to come up with some efforts. They will muddy the water. I'm sure what the, the, the other side will do is to try to maintain that, oh, uh, our people didn't do a systematic review themselves, knowing full well that the biggest systematic review was done by the NTP and they, they found it was neurotoxic. But nevertheless, they'll, they'll try to argue that and it, to me, it's preposterous because what they're saying, in effect, there is this black box. And you take these four, at least four, U.S. government studies that show there's a real problem. And you put it in this black box. And then you put other studies in there, none of which are of the same quality. And you turn a handle and mince everything out. And it comes out and says, no problem. That's a typical industry tactic, typical industry. So somehow, darn good studies kind of evaporate or get lost in a process. And I hope the judge will recognize that this is, must be a bogus process. And that what he has to do is to look at the weight of evidence of these high quality studies. And of course, we want the rest of the world to do that. We want to do these pro professional bodies in those countries I mentioned, we want them to do the same, to look at the weight of evidence of the best quality studies. And if they do that, and if they have a conscience of ethics, they'll have to bring this to an end. Okay. Michael, 20 years. So if you're victorious, and uh, it sounds like uh, the EPA will appeal that decision and continue to process, or delay the process uh, right. as long as they can, but will you use that interim victory to accelerate the removal of fluoride from these communities around the world? Yes, absolutely. And I think it will do something else. I mean, we've been able to bring this to, to, to court under the Toxic Substances and Control Act, which has a clause in there that any group or individual can petition the United States EPA to remove, to ban any particular use of a particular chemical in the United States, if they can show it's an unreasonable risk to the population or even a subset of the population. And we are the first group, the FAN, the Florida Action Network, along with Food and Water Watch, are the first groups to ever 
do this. So it's establishing a very important precedent, which is really worrying the chemical industry, which is uh, a big concern of us because behind the scenes, I'm sure they're trying to muddy the waters in every way they can. But it's a huge precedent. And I also believe, you know, your part, you have been kind enough to bring a lot of groups together under this Health Freedom Alliance. And I hope that our victory will also shoot adrenaline into the veins of all these other groups, the Organic Consumers Association, which is getting victories of its own, along with Children's Defense, Robert Kennedy's group, who won a huge battle against glyphosate. The guys that are fighting genetic engineering, uh, another group there, um, the National Inform uh, Vaccine Information Center, I'm sure they'll be excited that little David has taken on Goliath and, and won a battle. It's, we feel if we win, it's, it's a, a victory for a lot of other groups. Uh, that are the other, well, you left out the other important dental metal, which is oh, mercury. Yeah. And oh, yes. Charlie Brown just actually was able, just emailed me the other, last week that they, uh, Manila, the Philippines have now outlawed the use of mercury for all pregnant women and children. And in three years, it will be outlawed for everyone in the country. Yes. And, there, and there's another case where the concern, the big concern is what you do to the fetus, which is Philippe Grandjean. As far as mercury is concerned, it was Philippe Grandjean's work in the Faroes Islands that propelled that issue forward. The level of mercury that women are exposed to consuming fish. Now, of course, we got the, the concern about the use of thimerosal uh, injecting um, ethyl mercury directly into the bloodstream of babies. That's another huge issue. So a lot of these things are following the same trajectory. Both mercury amalgams and fluoride have been promoted for years and years and years by the American Dental Association who've managed with their huge resources to manipulate FDA on the one hand with mercury amalgams and the EPA on the other hand with the water fluoridation issue. But I think the, um, the emperor is losing his clothes, both sets of clothes on mercury amalgams and on fluoride's neurotoxicity. So the work continues to remove fluoride from the water supply. But you've been busy in other areas associated with fluoride too, and one that will become increasingly pervasive with the adoption of electric vehicles and, and lithium-ion battery technology. So uh, lithium-ion batteries don't last forever, and they need to be recycled. And that recycling process involves liberation of mercury into the environment. So I wonder if you can give us an update on that process. And It's the fluoride. It turns out, by the way, before I say anything, I'm not opposed to the recycling of lithium-ion batteries. I want that to happen. This is an important uh, use of materials, of lithium-ion battery, electric cars, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This, this laptop I'm using right now is powered by lithium-ion yeah. batteries. So we want to recycle them. But there are ways of doing this with chemicals, fairly mild chemicals. Acids like um, aspartic acid could, could leach out these metals safely. Um, as opposed to the process that we are currently fighting, which is a high temperature process. The, the, the disassembled batteries are fed into a rotary kiln operating at 600 degrees Celsius. That evaporates a lot of the plastics 
and electrolytes in the batteries, the non-metal part. So the metal part drops out of the bottom of the kiln and that's what they want, the metals, the cobalt, the manganese, the nickel, the lithium. But the plastic parts and the, as I say, electrolytes are evaporated and then they go to an afterburner which burns at at least 800 degrees Celsius. And that's where all the problems come because in these batteries are fluorinated polymers. Polymers used for the binders, polyvanillidine difluoride, which is 60% fluorine, and an electrolyte called lithium hexafluorophosphate, LIPF6. And that too, when it's heated, breaks down to produce hydrogen fluoride, which becomes hydrofluoric acid, hydrogen fluoride in large amounts in the particular facility that burns a thousand kilograms a day, wants to, to be located 20 minutes from where I live. So <laughs> many people during this COVID crisis have been sitting at home wondering what to do. My wife and I have been revved up to high gear to fight this lithium ion battery incinerator, as we call it, because of these huge hydrogen fluoride emissions and also uh, dioxin emissions. And also, we now discover that one of the electrolytes uses a PFOS, perfluorinated alkyl substance. And those, of course, are now described as the dioxins of the 21st century, the forever chemicals. And what this has done, Joe, <laughs> is fortuitous, is brought together nearly all the strands of our activism. As you know, I've had 35 years fighting incineration and dioxins, but only 24 years fighting fluoridation. And now we're meeting hydrogen fluoride in spades. At the very least, the problem will be, what do you do with the sodium fluoride that's left over in the effluent, the wastewater, I hope someone doesn't suggest putting it in the drinking water because also in that wastewater, you'll have the PFAS, the polyfluorinated alkyl substance. And my wife has spent many, many years maintaining a database on these PFOs and PFAs going back to the time that the environmental working group that we worked with on sulfurofluoride and other things was letting the world know of the PFOSs and PFAs. I mean, the, the names of these things are horrible. Um, but she's been concerned with that for a long time. So we've been able to draw on three different strands of our activism to help this local community. And of course, in the process ourselves. So is there a solution to recycle it in, more, in a more environmentally friendly way? Do we put some filter on there to capture these substances? Or is there another way to make divert them so it's collected and disposed of properly and not contaminate the environment? Well, we've got two large groups of processes for doing this. One process is called hydrometallurgical processes, which use aqueous water-based solutions, pretty mild chemicals. Then you literally dissolve out the metals and precipitate what you want, cobalt, hydroxide, lithium carbonate, and so on. So there's a way of reclaiming these metals in a, a way which doesn't propel gaseous emissions into the environment. Is, uh, my guess is that that way is probably more expensive, which is why they're doing the environmentally dangerous. Yeah, this is cheap and dirty. 
You know, incineration is the crudest form of chemistry you can get. It's totally unpredictable. We get, we're literally going to get thousands of fluorinated products coming out of the system. And one thing I didn't mention is that this facility is going to be built opposite, across the road from where people are living and adjacent to where kids are playing baseball. I mean, it is an absolutely insane, unethical siding, especially when you know that Endicott, New York, was polluted by IBM. They left a huge uh, pool of, of trichloroethylene under their facility, which if that goes, becomes a gas and goes into people's homes, they have to vent people's homes. The end result is that they're higher than national and local uh, cancer rates in Endicott. So it's the last community should be exposed to this. And the only other plant of its kind operated by a company called Sunjil is in South Korea. And in South Korea, it's located in an 8,000 acre industrial area, which has no air regulations to encourage experimentation. The nearest community is three miles away. And it's like in a peninsula with three sides bordered by the sea, the South China Sea. So most of the pollutants, whatever they are, are going out to sea. Yeah, they contaminate the, the fish and the, the yeah. seafood and, and you know, that whole food chain and that people rely on for their food. Yeah, I, I think, I'm glad you said that because, you know, the tendency is for people to say, this is such an outrageous sighting that they interpret this as you, you're saying it should be cited somewhere else. Well, I don't believe that. I think it's a bad process. Yeah. It shouldn't be cited anywhere. So I thank you for underlining that because there is no safe place. No, there's not. It's the process that needs to be uh, modified. So I'm wondering if you're in negotiation discussions at this point and if they refuse to uh, protect the environment and the community, do you plan on suing them? We have that in the works, Joe, but I don't think it's going to be necessary because, you know, the, 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 the four letters PFAS is like a lightning strike as far as the EPA and the, D, the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation. Thanks to DuPont. <laughs> yeah, well, to their credit, the DEC has reopened the air permit that they issued and saying we have to look at this PAFS because they're very difficult to destroy in incineration. That's the problem with the PFAs. They, so, they have these carbon fluorine bonds which are so stable, you can't destroy them very easily with heat and you can't destroy them bi biologically. So they build up in the environment, they're accumulating in the groundwater, in our soil and in our bodies. The forever chemicals. So the DEC has reopened the air permit. That's good news. And what we have suggested to them is, look, you put in to this system, the state, New York State, you put $750,000 into monitoring the facility if this was built. That was a wise thing to do, and thank you. However, we don't think it should be built here, but we do think you should use this $750,000 to do absolutely accurate and science-proof measurements of your facility. And it'd be worth your while doing that, Sanjil, because you probably want to build it somewhere else. And if you have better scientific data, that might be easier. And meanwhile, we're asking 
if there's any money left over, give it to Binghamton University. You know, I live in Binghamton, and Binghamton University is the home of a fellow, Stan Whittingham, who won a Nobel Prize, one of the three Nobel Prize winners for developing the lithium-ion batteries. So wouldn't it be appropriate if they now got involved in the research of, of recycling practices which don't pose the same problems that, that this incinerator would pose? Yeah, it, would it sounds like that's a better strategy because you really don't want them relocating to a different place. Yeah. You need to establish that their proposed incineration method is toxic to humans and the environment and needs to be changed. Yes. to prevent contamination. So not only this facility, but facilities all over the country. Yeah. Uh, I mean, this should be, ideally, uh, they're not picking on your community. I'm, I'm sure they're proposing plants like this all over the country and every community that has that plant uh, built is exposed to the same challenges. We've got another DuPont disaster in the wings. Absolutely. And I must say, uh, uh, to, in defense of this company, they were invited here. The, the New York State Empire State Development, this group, uh, which is largely controlled by Andrew Cuomo, the governor, they thought they were doing Endicott a favor. You know, when IBM left Endicott, they left a lot of empty buildings, which is now called the Huron Campus. And they thought they could make this the lithium-ion battery capital of the world. They would make the batteries there and they would recycle the batteries there. With one hitch, the South Korean company wants to take all the recovered metals, some of which are strategic, the cobalt, the manganese, the nickel, the lithium, back to South Korea. Not leave them in the United States, but back to South Korea. And of course, it's a double whammy because they would leave the pollution behind in Endicott. But they were... As I say, the, the New York State invited them into Endicott, I think with good intentions. They wanted economic development for a depressed area, but you don't get good economic development when you pollute that depressed no. area. You yeah, what they're proposing is exactly what's actually been outlawed in China. We used to ship all our quote-unquote recyclable plastic, which is a myth that the industry perpetrated, so they continue to sell their garbage. And we shipped it to China, and then China recycled some of it, but a relatively small part. And most of it was burned and incinerated, polluting China to, to enormous levels. Mm -hmm. And eventually they woke up and said, we're not going to tolerate this anymore. And that's now outlawed. Yeah. And now it's shipped to other countries like in, in, in Indonesia, where they're having the same pollution challenges, and they're, they're running this, eventually outlawed. But... Uh, you know, so you've got the issue of burning plastics, not only the, the fluorides, but the plastics, which are going to, which should not be burned and put into the environment. Absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned that because one of the people that I've known for 35 years, worked on incineration for many, many years, is Judith Ank. Now, I don't know if you've heard of Judy, but she was, Judith, she was the regional director, uh, administrator of Region 2 of the U.S. EPA under the Obama administration did a lot of good work when she was there. Well, now, of course, with the new administration, she's out of that. So she is now a professor at Bennington College, but also heads up a group called Beyond Plastics and is dealing very much with the issues that you're talking about. 
the dangers of burning incinerators, incinerator, burning plastics, which is where the industry wants to go with plastics. It's the plastics industry supports incineration because it gets rid of the evidence, the evidence of bad industrial design with these single use plastics, which has become probably one of the biggest environmental issues on the planet right after global warming is microplastics and other plastic objects getting into the, the oceans, particularly the Pacific. Very, very big issue. And unfortunately, I'm kept very busy going to countries like Philippines, Indonesia, Malaysia, um, where they are trying to build incinerators to burn all these plastics. Yeah. Just an absolute mistake. Because it's not even the microplastics, it's the nanoplastics, you know, the next level down. And those are just integrated into the food chains in the, in the sea. And yeah. eventually, you know, if you're going to eat fish, which are literally one of the healthiest foods on the planet, you've, you've contaminated that whole source of healthy food. Irreversibly. And because we have no idea of the, the, the health causing or health damaging effects of exposure to this micropollution. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the word nano, and that brings up another issue, which there was a, a shocking paper came out last November, and it showed a relationship between nanoparticles in a city's air, the number of nanoparticles in a city's air, and an increase in brain cancer. Mm -hmm. They showed an association between, what was it, 10,000 nanoparticles in a cubic meter of air was associated with a 10% increase in brain cancer, uh, prevalence of brain cancer in that city. And that's an amazing result because let's look at the numbers. I did a calculation, 10,000 nanoparticles, if the particles were iron and they were spherical, would amount to less than one billionth of a gram of material. One billionth of a gram in your city air a nanogram <laughs> yeah a billionth of a gram yeah a nanogram yeah uh, so um there's a lot of bad news out there um you know nanoparticles are just so scary because there's no defense the, the membrane there's no, no defense. well we need people like you to help spread the word and you know use your um gifts in understanding of the science to, to support the, some rational common sense in protecting our health and the environment's health, because ultimately the health of the environment is related to our personal health at some point down the road. Yeah. You know, so, so with the environment, you know, people say, what's the environment? And they usually point out there, you know, out there somewhere, out there, <laughs> out there, about the environment, but, it's in here. You can't do something out there that doesn't end up in here. Mm -hmm. You can't put persistent fat-soluble toxics out into the sediments of the Great Lakes without putting them into the fat of human beings around the Great Lakes. And it's just, these, we have to learn these things the hard way. Uh, there is this connection, all things connect, and we particularly connect the inside of our bodies is the internal environment and then out. Right. 
let's get practical because you know you're doing your best to which i think where most of the folk the energy needs to be focused is on preventing the introduction continued introduction of fluoride into the environment so but many of us in fact most of us have large amounts of fluoride in our system so what are your recommendations for i think the the one of the most common questions we get is how to effectively remove fluoride from your body. And then, then we can follow up with some of this practical strategies, make sure you're not continuing to poison yourself with fluoride. Yeah. Well, I think um, I have to duck this in a way because I'm not a medical doctor and I do not know. I can't put my heart on my hand and say, I really understand. There are people, um, uh, people that practice uh, natural medicine that have, suggested certain substances out there will remove um, fluoride from the body. But we have to say that the, the most important thing you have to do if you want to protect your health is to stop the source of fluoride. So if you're a tea drinker, don't drink so much tea. I drink a lot of tea. I'm English. Um, but tea is a big source of fluoride. So mix it around. If you're going to drink tea, Drink tea, drink coffee, drink herbal tea, mix it around, not too much tea. Avoid animal bones. Don't eat the bones from sardines and pilchards. Don't eat the bones from chicken. Avoid mechanically boned meat, deboned meat. How, how does fluoride wind up in the bones? Is that, that where the body stores it? Yeah. You've got two defenses. When you fluoride goes into your body, you've got two defenses. First of all, um, the kidney first time round, we'll try to get rid of it. And they get, the kidney gets rid of at least uh, what, um, 50% every day is being squirted out in your urine. But what doesn't get squirted out the first few times in the kidney, in your blood, quickly gets sequestered in the bone. Mm -hmm. Well, that's good from a immediate toxicity point of view. But in terms of long-term toxicity, it's building up in your bones and eventually it could hurt your your bones may give you arthritis, arthritic symptoms. It could be impacting the immune system, some of which is in the bone marrow. Um, but that doesn't weaken the bone. Well, it makes the bone more brittle. Okay, so it weakens it. So you're more likely to get a fracture. Yeah, and you, yeah. Practice is a law for long term. The immediate first thing is impacting the connective tissue, which gives you pains in the joints. That's the mm. interaction with the collagen. And then it accumulates in the bones. It makes the bones more brittle. It makes them harder, and then it makes them more brittle. And then you have the big issue is hip fractures. Can, can, you, can you leach out fluoride uh, from the bone with water? And the reason I ask is that bone broth has a pretty good reputation for a health food. And uh, it seems like one of the consequences, if it's water-soluble and you can leach it out with heating the bones, and that may not be the best food to eat. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe, but maybe. Is, it, is it water soluble? So you, can you extract it out with, with hot water? Um, the bones are turning over like every tissue. No, but when you're making bone broth, you know, which is typically. Oh, yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's coming at you. My grandmother, she could make soup out of anything and she would get a big mutton bone and boil it up and boil it up. And wonderful soups out of that. Of course, did you, ever, did you ever measure it as an analytical chemist what the fluoride content was? No, I didn't. No, no. I actually, I was reached retirement age long before I could do too many experiments with with, with fluoride. I retired in two thousand six. I, I, I let other people do the experiments. Uh, fortunately for. 
for the world. But, you know, again, the bone is turning over every 20 years. So, you know, it's, you're losing it over your lifetime. It's coming out all the time. So if you're be models, because there's a process for those who aren't familiar with it, there's osteoblast and osteoclast. And the clasts are what actually eat up and remodel the bone, digest it, then the osteoblasts build it up. And that's actually how one of the drugs, the uh, biphosphonates uh, work, to treat osteoporosis is that they damage the osteoclast, the, the cells that are responsible for destroying it, with the with the belief that if you don't eat the bone up, then the osteoblast will build more bone. But that there's it's a dynamic process, and you need this coming and going. And in this process of remodeling the bone the way it's supposed to be done, you're going to liberate some of that flora that's being stored there. Yeah, indeed. And of course, they use, before they use bisphosphonate, they use fluoride. <laughs> to, to, to use fluoride to, to treat osteoporosis. Yes. But to, it's, it's, it's the same lunatic approach, both devastatingly flawed, fatally flawed, and, and, yep. and, and guaranteed to fail. I, it's just unbelievable how they can get away with this stuff. Yeah, it was a human experiment, but we learned a lot from that human experiment. We, we, we learned that it actually increased hip fracture rates in the elderly. Yeah, just like biphosphonates, it's the same process. You can't impair the osteoclast without long-term damaging health consequences. Yeah, yeah. Joe, I have to thank you for something. My wife is an absolute religious follower of your advice, and she's just developed over the last few days shingles. She, she learned from your webpage that what you do is apply Raw honey, especially mm -hmm. the raw honey produced in the area of New Zealand, to the rack. Manuka, it's called manuka honey. Manuka honey. That's right. It's expensive, but it seems to be working. It's eased the pain. It's reduced mm -hmm. the inflammation. So those little old bees, I, my theory is that they must produce a lot of enzymes which are still in that raw honey and, and unprocessed, I take it. And yeah. And they're doing their job of reducing. Well, I'm, I'm glad it's working, but that, that's just a healthy symptomatic Band-Aid without any damaging long-term side effects, except maybe the price of, of the honey. But, but what's more fundamental is to treat the cause, which usually uh, an exacerbation of herpes is a, an impairment of the immune process. So another short-term strategy would to take supplements like lysine as its amino acid and to cut down arginine, which counteracts that. That, that'll help quite a bit, especially in the cuteness episode. And then look at things to improve your immune function, which is you know, basically engaging in exercise, things like uh, uh, sauna on a regular basis, exposure to the sunshine, and you know, uh, getting metabolically flexible. So the, you want to improve your immune process, and which are the exact same strategy, and improving your vitamin D levels. Yeah. So these, all these strategies are what you would use not only to, to improve your immune system for things like herpes, but also to improve your resilience and resistance to infections, like upper respiratory infections, or even SARS-CoV-2. So yeah. these are the strategies that optimize health and essentially improves your resilience to all diseases. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for my wife. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, tell her to follow the next step. So, if she believed the manuka work, and I'm glad it helped, but you got to take the next step because, you know, a lot of us get distressed that we come down with these health uh, problems or complications. But the way I look at it or view it is, and I think is a healthier uh, alternative, is to view it as a gift that this is a 
a, a signal from your body, to a message. It's the only way it can communicate with you that you're doing something that isn't aligned with your optimal health. So it's giving you the clue that you need to reconsider your current life strategy. And this is for all of us. This is the, including me. Yeah, all the time. I mean, I'm getting feedback. I've got some brilliant idea, I think, but it turns out it's wacky a second. It was, I was wrong on steroids and I have to reevaluate my strategy. And sure enough, you know, that's the way your body communicates with you. It's never going to lie. Yeah. Yeah. It's just good. I like it. I like it. Yeah. So, uh, any other updates you would like to share with us? Um, yes. Of those who are interested in the, the whole neurotoxicity of fluoride, our senior scientist at Florida Action Network, Chris Neurath, wonderful person, he's just um, done a webinar. And today we put it up, that webinar, the videotape of his webinar, explaining in some scientific detail, which I did in general terms at the beginning of this interview. So if you really want the latest science well communicated, mm -hmm. go to our webpage, Fluoride Alert dot org and you can see this power uh, his presentation and also get his powerpoint um excellent it's, it's less than an hour i think it's pretty easy to understand and uh, an invaluable resource as is our whole web page of course fluoridealert.org and whilst we're at it right now we're in the middle of our fundraiser when this actually when you actually broadcast this as part of fluoride awareness week Joe, it will be at the tail end of our spring fundraiser, or spring-summer fundraiser. So we need some cash. Anybody that has some money would like to. Yeah, and, and then we obviously, uh, or maybe not so obviously, but just remind people that for everyone, every dollar is donated, we match that to yeah. help support the cause. So you can not, not only know that you're helping personally, but that it, your donations are actually multiplied. That's wonderful, Joe. And you've been so supportive of us and, and the other groups in the Health Freedom Alliance. Um, again, thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. Yeah, well, we need people like you, organizations to help protect us and as, as, a, uh, as a culture, as a society, because there's too many nefarious, greedy corporations out there who are really have a short-term focus, focus on their their immediate profits and really put aside any impact that, that it has on the environment and our, and our personal health. So we need organizations like yourself who can facilitate and help assist us to protect us from these types of companies. Absolutely. Will do. All right. Well, it's good. And you got a whole, uh, best of luck to you with that uh, lithium ion recycling because, you know, that's another hidden Source and it's interesting that they would put the, supposedly the United States leading recycling facility in a community that you lived in. <laughs> what 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 an irony! Well, my life is going round in circles. I mean, I started. They tried to build an incinerator in my hometown of or in the home county in New York State in 1985. And I got involved. Who knew that that would trigger me getting involved? It's taken me to 69 different countries so far. <laughs> that yeah. then, then my wife got me involved with fluoridation, and we had to get it out of Canton, New York. But that was another 20, 20 years. And now here we go again. 
They're citing a lithium ion battery a few miles from where I live. This is probably going to end up being propelling me into this battle with how you handle lithium ion batteries. And, yes, oh, indeed. Well, you, I, I would encourage you to be grateful because if you weren't involved with this, you'd be retired, maybe playing golf somewhere, and that would absolutely unequivocally shorten your lifespan. So you are, you are definitely increasing your longevity by participating in these battles. I absolutely agree with you. I, I'm so pleased and I feel so privileged to be able to do for free what I did for a living. I, for a living, I taught chemistry and I tried to make chemistry understandable to people that wanted to get a degree. Now I try to make chemistry understandable to the community that needs it often to survive as their, as their character at least survive. And to do it pro bono is a joy to me. Yeah. And you mentioned those greedy corporations. I'm up against all the time, as you are, consultants who are working in the corporate interest. And I like to think of myself, and probably you do too, as a consultant in the public interest. We're trying to do good things with our knowledge. And you don't need to be paid to do that and to feel great pleasure doing that. So you're absolutely... Well, you you don't, but you need a source of revenue. We all have bills to pay, which is why we're supporting you in this Fluoride Action Awareness Week to help provide you with the funds to do what you do because you essentially don't draw a salary. I mean, you basically, you're doing this on your own dime, but you have to run the organization. You have to fly to these countries. So, I mean, it takes, that, that needs to be funded in some way. And I'm re really happy to participate in the process and we'll encourage others to, to help you along your, your route. We do have to pay a few staff uh, you know as we've grown over the years we have a total budget of about 250,000 a year and we have um, three or four full-time staff including my wife who works for a pittance and I get a nominal thing for a pittance but um, we do need to keep that staff going because it's a you know when you're trying to fight something all over the world it, yeah yeah it's not easy it's definitely uh, a challenge well yeah. thank you for all your work and uh, your willingness to help protect us and the environment. Thank you, Joe. Thank you very much.